This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 10, recorded on February 5th, 2019. listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah, and I'm here with Dr. Foner. How are you doing, man? Really good. First uh, full week back after the polar vortex, so I'm glad to oh, see everybody survive that from last week. unnecessary. I don't think we needed those two days off. But right. hey, I was glad to have two days off. I was just about to cut you off and say you yeah, weren't complaining, were you? No, no, I was not complaining. But you know, put me behind in lab. Oh, I'm behind Cell in my bio. exercise phys lab now, like at least one week. I have yeah, to, sneak I have to in. push back an exam. Well, we have a special guest with us here today, we and do. that is Dr. Sarah Woodley, uh-huh. um, my former uh, principal investigator and advisor from Duquesne University. So this has to be an extra special episode so that I can impress her. And she goes on to Duquesne to say, look what Dr. Fawner's doing. Um, welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So we're going to talk uh, a little bit with you about sort of, you know, uh, what to do sort of to become a scientist, talk a little bit about your career so far, how you got here, any advice you have and research at Duquesne. But uh, we'll get some uh, podcast business done first, if you don't mind. Okay. So uh, speaking of uh, February 5th, whose uh, birthday is it today? A very famous English physiologist and biophysicist by the name of Sir Alan Hodgkin. And he shared the 1963 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine with Andrew Huxley and John Eccles for their work with basically the discovery of the action potential theory. Um, They were initially, both Hodgkin and Huxley, they developed and researched the initial applications and design of the voltage clamp, which was a kind of key methodological discovery when it came to studying action potentials. They, the really cool and critical element of their research, I use this all the time in human phys, was the discovery of the kind of action potential in the giant axon of the vein squid. I believe they first started working with the sciatic nerve of frogs and then they eventually kind of went to working with the axon of squid because of how big it is. And they were eventually able to determine the kind of ionic currents and the the ionic channels that are present in those nerves and thus led to the discovery of action potentials. So pretty key for what I imagine I talk about and what Sarah talks about quite a lot in her physiology Mm -hmm. courses. Yeah, this is very serendipitous in terms of amphibians and physiology. (laughs) Well, I always say... Physiology is integrative. Everything ties together. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, one thing to talk about real quickly here, we had a listener comment on our last episode where we talked about cancer immunotherapy, right? And in there, we talked about Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then we talked about lymphomas in general being aggressive cancers, right? And uh, this ri- listener wrote in, Bruno, first of all, thanks for listening and writing to our show. Uh, hey, very interesting info. Thanks for sharing. At some point in the podcast, Hodgkin's lymphoma, lymphoma is mentioned as an aggressive cancer with usually poor prognosis and metastatic results. Just wanted to say that Hodgkin's lymphoma is one of the most curable cancers with usually 80 to 85% of cases cured from the first treatment, which has been used for decades now. And there are several other treatments to be used for the unlucky minority who have a recurrence. And for those who fail those as well, checkpoint inhibitors have had very good success rates in keeping patients in remission for many years. I'm not in the medical field, but learned a few things about Hodgkin's lymphoma in the past couple of years. So uh, just as a clarification, I, I went back and listened to what we actually said, right? Uh, we did talk about Hodgkin's lymphoma, and right after that, we mentioned other lymphomas as well. 
we should and talk I believe about I misspoke and, well, and, and maybe misattributed how aggressive that type of cancer We should is. have split that sentence, right? Probably. So we talked about Hodgkin's lymphoma, then we talked about how aggressive lymphomas in general are and have poor prognoses, and we should have specified that we were not talking about Hodgkin's lymphoma in terms of prognosis. But anyway, thanks for the clarification and uh, keeping us on our uh, toes and checking us. And Well, no, we welcome these types oh, of critiques. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. If we ever miss you know, misspeak about anything, we, of course, welcome clarifications, uh, minor edits. What was my famous one from episode two or three? Um, REM, was it? Oh, um, yeah, REM sleep. I yeah. mistakenly <laughs> said it's supposed to be rapid eye movement. What did I say? Resting, resting eye movement. <laughs> yeah. So, boy, was that... That was embarrassing. I got a text about that from a friend of mine in Seattle. No, we set the Twitter sphere on fire with that comment. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, again, I want to just, again, say to our listeners, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for informing us of anything that if we say something and it's not elaborated on enough or if it's yeah. erroneous, we appreciate you know, These are input. natural conversations we have. You know, we prep as much as possible for every episode, but there are things we don't know, and sometimes we have to look them up on the fly. And but here we are. Anyway, so we have uh, Dr. Woodley with us today. And uh, do you prefer Sarah, Dr. Woodley? You can call me Sarah, please. Okay. Sarah works. So you are an associate professor of biology at Duquesne, is that correct? Correct, yes, in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. And uh, we took advantage of uh, the opportunity of having you here at Teal today. You gave a talk on the effects of pesticides on... Uh, brain development and morphology in amphibians. That was great. I think our students loved it. I liked it. Thank you. We've got some good questions. I'm always pleased to get questions. And a lot of this, again, a very keen group of students who were in attendance and um, the students who attended lunch with you um, particularly have, you know, they're very keen in terms of research questions. In fact, some of the students have either worked with us on research projects. One student, I believe, Tina, right, worked with yeah, you in Tina. the lab this past summer. Mm -hmm. And then one is currently starting preparation for his senior project for next year. So a lot of different ideas that they're probably brainstorming. Yeah, well, they talked at lunch about some of their research experiences. And, and what I was struck by is that they seem to enjoy what they were doing. Well, that's a good thing. And that not that important? They don't tell us yes. that. Yeah, they won't yes. tell you that, no. <laughs> When they're getting texts from you at 8 in the morning, how's the Western block going? No, they're probably yeah, not going to yeah. say, boy, I love this work I'm doing, Dr. A. Uh, this poor, uh, well, I mean, she graduated now. She's down in Pittsburgh, actually, as a lab technician at the University of Pitt. She used to have to come in and start uh, early morning listeria cultures because they need to grow for three uh -huh. hours before we do our six-hour experiments, right? And, and poor Beverly. I think she's mentioned, what, every other episode? Maybe. She's become, <laughs> she's become infamous. We have to have her on sometime before the end of the semester. Absolutely. But anyway, we should not uh, stray too much. So, it, uh, Sarah, we, we'd love for you to tell us, uh, you know, how you started in science. Uh, you can go back as, hey, what triggered your science interest? Maybe way back in college or high school, what, however okay. much you want to go back. And Yeah, well, well so, in, anyway... <clears throat> Well, I guess I've always been interested in learning, um, and I've always been kind of a well-rounded person. I had a lot of interests growing up, and I remember in high school, I couldn't decide, did I want to be a science person or a humanities person, because I liked English, but I also liked science. And, um, I, and I, I think one of the things that drew me to science is I liked being outdoors, and I, I love the idea of doing something that would give me an excuse to be outdoors, and that really was just kind of a naive idea. Um, there aren't that many jobs where you can spend a lot of time outdoors, but that's what kind of drew me to the sciences. Um, and then in college, I um, I still couldn't make up my mind, and I actually was a double major. I did biology, but also French, so I have two degrees, oh, okay. one in French and one in biology. Um, but it kind of became increasingly clear that there are probably more jobs as a biology major than as a French major. Um, but I've always loved language and words, uh, and um, and I got to study abroad in France as in my junior year. I studied in Strasbourg for, for nine months. Back okay. in those days, you didn't just go for a week here or spring break no, or May semester. It was two semesters. May semester, I like that. Um, but anyway, so, but one of the experiences I had in college is I participated in the Student Conservation Association. This was a summer activity, um, and the, um, it's still around the SCA, 
but basically you volunteer to work in some sort of conservation area, and I volunteered to work at um, Cape Lookout National Seashore, where I monitored, I, I worked alongside a park ranger, and we monitored on this very isolated barrier island uh, shorebirds that were uh, colonially nesting, and then I we would every every morning, like at like two a.m. in the morning, we'd drive up and down on our ATVs along the beach looking for sea turtles to see if they were coming oh, up sweet. to nest yeah. on the beach. And th that's North Carolina, right? This was yes, North Carolina, Cape Lookout. It's just south of Cape Hatteras, and it's okay. it's undeveloped. Nice. So it was a very extreme, intense kind of experience. I was kind of a shy, reserved person, and so to be like riding on an ATV by myself <laughs> at 2 a.m. in the morning looking for, looking turtles, for turtles, which is crazy for me, um, but I did it. And um, So what was the research? Was it just sort of enumerate or like count eggs? Or it what? was just to identify okay. um, that they had nested and to cordon off the area so that tourists wouldn't disturb their nest because okay. it was an endangered, these were, uh, I believe, leatherback turtles. It's been a long time. But endangered sea turtles and just wanted to try to preserve their nests. Um, and the same thing with the, the shorebirds that were nesting, again, just to find the nests and cordon off so that uh, fishermen were the main people who visited the island or the, the area so that they would know to be careful. Was it pretty much... Uh, the same species of, of, of turtles that would come on? Yes, or, it was just that one species. Did they ever mix? Um, yeah. On that particular island, it was really only that okay. species. And, and that summer, there were very few. I would say maybe we found six or seven tops. Oh, wow. And wow. this was a 10-week, so not that many. I'm hoping, I think that there, the numbers have increased a bit since I was there. Uh, so it was many lonely nights driving up and down that beach, not finding anything. And it was a 20-mile beach, so we'd I'd drive the ATV 20 miles down and then come back up 20, 20 miles. And those That's things an go like a couple long miles night. an hour. Yeah. Like, what's the top speed on an ATV? I don't know. I just remember when I first... Uh, was trained, I had to watch all these terrifying videos about people dying on ATVs. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> They're very dangerous, but uh, I survived. But what a unique and great experience for, like, your first initial foray into research and not only an in intensive, what, you said 10 weeks? It was the whole summer, yeah, yeah. But, you know, ATV riding, I mean, what student wouldn't jump at the chance? In yeah. Carolina, I mean... It was really special. I, I was. I feel very lucky to have had that experience. Uh, and so then that was. I think I did it after my sophomore year in college. So then I, I went back to college. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, and I went to a turtle biologist because I had been studying these sea turtles. Was that for your PhD in Indiana? No, this is for my undergraduate Still degree. Okay. So yes, uh, so my junior year in college and there was someone who studied turtles and I said, hey, I want to do some research. Sure. So it was just kind of the serendipitous. I had this experience at the seashore. I learned a little bit about turtles. And this person said, well, I, I don't, I can't put you on, I don't have any turtles for you to study, but how about salamanders? There it is. Um, because uh, these little salamanders, they're quite common in the U.S., in the woods, um, and you can collect them. And so I started working with this professor on salamander behavior. It's a miracle I'm still in science because salamander behavior is like the most boring thing <laughs> ever. This was uh, the terrestrial plethodontid salamander behavior. Salamanders have the slow, lowest metabolic rate of any vertebrate. And that means they don't move around much. They mostly just sit there. Mm -hmm. And I just I'm was well versed in sitting <laughs> and watching for hours. Like I said, it's a miracle that I didn't go running, screaming. Um, but I think at that point, I kind of, my mentor was great. He, he let me figure out what the question was. He well, he gave me a couple papers to read. And from those papers, I got an idea of an experiment to do. And, and he was a very complimentary person. He said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So I spent several months watching salamander behavior. Um, and we didn't really get very interesting results, but it was more the idea that there was a hypothesis that no one had tested before and that I could contribute something novel. Kind of got me excited. I mean, that's really what most science is, right? People think of science as this groundbreaking stuff, right? Every once in a while, groundbreaking experiments happen, but most science just pushes the boundary a little bit. From a we basic just, question, yeah, even. we just yeah. know a little bit more, a little bit more, right? And, you know, every 
10 years or so, there's this groundbreaking discovery. Right. But that's been led to, yeah. and it results from the, you know, previous steps right. that right. start right. with the more kind of yeah, yeah. basic Absolutely. fundamental yeah. questions. Oh, no, it's all Incremental. Yeah. Yes. Incremental. Although every time we get a piece of data in the lab, I think it's uh, <laughs> fantastically groundbreaking. <laughs> Me too. There's just that thrill of discovery. Yeah. Uh, and... That's something else that you had mentioned that I really enjoyed, and it's not necessarily the same from one PI to the next, but you said your PI had said, okay, what do you want to study or what questions do you have? What would you like to develop maybe research around? And if, if I remember correctly, you did the same thing for me. And ah. that really made an impression on me when I first joined the lab, was at my second year. And you gave me, I was studying for the qualifiers, and you gave me, you know, a few papers and said, okay, read these over a weekend or over a week and come up with something you'd like to do. And that's when I first read about and fell in love with the chytrid fungus. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's when I decided to probably start making the research a little bit expensive and saying, okay, I want to <laughs> do the fungal work here. I want to do the qPCR here. What about these peptides? And... It's just that PCR is so expensive. Oh, trust me, I know, I know <laughs> that now. Um, thankfully, I got that first grant a few summers ago that allowed me to buy the QPCR machine mm -hmm. we have now. But mm -hmm. you know, getting back to that relationship between—excuse <clears throat> me—the M&Ms. I shouldn't have had those for lunch. <clears throat> but that relationship between the PI and the research student is key, and not only that trust, but some. PIs will have a project available, ready to go. Some PIs will say, okay, uh, let's see what you bring to the table. What are some questions that you have that you'd like to answer that we could efficiently study? So, No, I mean, lab fit is crucial. One of the pieces of advice that I always give students that are graduating going on to grad school uh -huh. is find a lab that you'll be happy in. Right? I mean, you want to get along with everybody else in the lab and the PI. Otherwise, it's going to be one long, miserable PhD, right? Right. And you want to do something that you're passionate about and that you have ownership on. Mm -hmm. If you're just doing it because someone got a grant and the work needs to be done, you don't have that ownership. It's not yours. Right. And I think the whole character of the project changes a bit. Yeah, I agree. So you worked on salamanders for a few years, I take it? Right. So, okay, right. So I went to graduate school um, and I was studying these salamanders and um, part of it involved field work where I went out late at night. So salamanders, these are terrestrial salamanders, uh, mostly from the family Plethodontidae, quite common throughout the Appalachian Mountains and the associated foothills and even into the Ozarks. And there are even some out on the West Coast. So they're widely distributed. But um, they're nocturnal. And it involved going out late at night uh, by myself. And no ATVs this time. No ATVs. <laughs> um, and it freaked me out um, going out late at night to do this work. And there were some other problems with the program. I had a wonderful research mentor, so it was nothing to do with her. Um, but um, it was a project mostly with animal behavior. And I've always been a very practical person. I want to make sure that there were jobs for me at the end of this. And honestly, there isn't a lot of uh, professional opportunities in the field of animal behavior. So I decided to leave that program. Um, I, dropped, I dropped out, actually, although I did end up getting a master's degree because I had done a research project and I, I published the seminal 1994 Woodley paper. I joke that it's seminal. Um, but it was, I'm very proud of that paper because it was a tough time for me uh, going out late at night um, in the pitch black on the mountain. And, you know, I'm just like, what, a 22-year-old young woman. But I did it, so I'm proud of myself that I was able to do it. But it took its toll on me. So for that plus a number of reasons, I left that program. And I just conveniently ended up, got a job as a technician working in a lab at Arizona State University. So I got to go to Tempe, Arizona, the desert, and I started working on lizards. And so a lot of people think salamanders and lizards are the same thing, but one is an amphibian, one is a, a, a reptile. One of the more common things I get asked by my family members is, oh, you did work that was lizards. lizards. <laughs> uh, your lizard work, right? And I've given up just saying to my dad, okay. <laughs> Next. Salamanders are slimy, lizards are scaly. Major difference. But um, one nice thing about the lizards is that they're diurnal. 
And so I could, again, spend time outside. Because remember, I always said I liked being outside. That was one of the things that, as a young person, I always liked being outside. So I did a lot of, I worked as a technician. And after a year, I looked around at these graduate students and I thought, I am just as talented and smart as they are. Right. I'm going to apply to the program and, and become a graduate student again. So I returned at, at Arizona State University. And, um, and I continue to do kind of the same work, hormones in field animal, but these lizards were diurnal. And <laughs> it was much easier to do field work on these diurnal animals. And um, I made a point, uh, I, I told myself I really wanted to do some work that was outside. And so I picked a species of lizard that was in an isolated mountain three hours away from Tempe in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I got to spend three summers frolicking in the desert. Um, it was actually a mountain, so it wasn't unbearably hot. It was, but it was beautiful. And I knew that this was the kind of thing I could only do as a young person, as a graduate student. It wasn't something I could do as a career, but I was pleased that I, I had that experience. So I guess a lot of things have motivated, but motivated me in my science, that fact of being able to study, learn something novel and the whole scientific process, but also these unique opportunities to travel, to be places that no one else has ever been, mm -hmm. or do something no one else has ever done. Right. So lots of people hike in the desert, but not that many people spend eight six, eight hours a day in the desert for two, two months straight watching lizards, doing experiments on lizards. Uh, we're doing field behavior, sort of uh, not, uh, looking at how their hormones affected their behavior in the field. So I think that's something that's kind of overlooked at times when it comes to graduate students and why it's such a unique and, to me, a very attractive, you know, career path. It, you get these opportunities to go to these locales and different areas that you normally wouldn't have. Um, whenever I would go to Highlands, I never would have gone to Highlands, gone to Wyabald all the way on top of that mountain, and like you, what? working from 11 p.m. to sometimes 4 in the morning catching salamanders. Uh, I say that to most people, and they say, wow, that's when you caught the salamanders. You know, 1 p.m.? No, 11 p.m. to sometimes 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. So those unique experiences, those are the best times of my life. Sorry, Kayla, my fiancé, I love you. But um, those were the best moments of my life as a graduate student where... We Kayla's can... not listening, but... No, she isn't. <laughs> she gave me half a chance in the first episode and said, oh, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. But those were some of my favorite memories. I remember, you know, those weeks I spent down there and loving every minute of it. Hard work, but, you know, I, I still want to find time to go back, you know, when I have time. Right. It might not be something you want to do every day. Um, now, as an older person, I like the fact that I have a laboratory and most of my work is in the lab and convenient. And I love the fact that I have students to help me with that work. But um, yeah, my ha some of the, my happiest memories are being a young, independent researcher, mm -hmm. doing that sort of thing. No, yeah, that, yeah. That, that sounds neat. And, you know, there's there's joy that comes from generating new knowledge. I mean, there is. I, I yes. get joy out of that. Oh, of yeah. course. Yeah. So. yeah. And then, uh, so you finished your PhD. Did you do right. a postdoc? I did. So I figured, practical person, I'm always trying to think of what I should do to make sure I'm employable. So my PhD, I mentioned I had, had abandoned pure animal behavior. And my PhD, I, I, I trained myself more as a physiologist. Um, and for my postdoc, I wanted to be, uh, get some experience in neuroscience. And so I worked at Boston University and I studied olfaction in ferrets. So a, a mammalian model or carnivores, um, a very different experience. Mm. And I just did that for two years. And, and they have a good sense of smell. Like, aren't they right. used so, in some like bomb detonation in like certain situations, right? So mammals have very cute um, olfaction and we know a lot about their the odorants that they use in social signaling. But yes, they, they have a really good sense of smell, all of them. And, and ferrets are in the group carnivora. So they're not rodents, they're carnivores like mm -hmm. the cats and the dogs would be. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, but um, the, there are a lot of issues associated working with ferrets. Um, they're very large animals. They're expensive. Um, and they are pets. 
some people have pet uh-huh. ferrets, and mm-hmm. that um, you know, ethically, that was hard for me to work mm-hmm. with them. Of course. So um, I decided then, when I was lucky enough to get a job at Duquesne University as a professor, I decided to return to amphibians uh, because they're a lot easier to work with. They're cheaper. They they're better suited to research for undergraduates. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, amphibians are a really great model for a lot of very important research questions. And so right now, my research is about how different stressors affect brain development. And amphibians are a great model for that because development occurs in the water. They have external fertilization, and all the development occurs in these, these the eggs, the, the embryonic development in the egg, and then they hatch, and they have the tadpole phase, which is sort of analogous somewhat to fetal development in mammals. So um, I much prefer working on amphibians. They're a lot easier to work with. Cool. Well, with that, segueing into your current work at Duquesne, uh, we'll take a quick radio break. So for those of you listening on the radio, there'll be a music uh, interlude. And for those listening on the podcast, we'll just uh, keep going. And we're back. Let's uh, talk about uh, your current work at Duquesne. All right. Well... Um, I have been increasingly interested in the effects of stress, all sorts, very broadly defined, and how stress affects physiology of animal, the, their behavior, and, and, and their neural function. And I'm really excited by this recent line of work where we have been uh, working with my, my student, Sarah, a graduate student, very talented graduate student. We have been looking at the effects of trace levels of pesticides. Um, and um, we're looking at levels that are thought to be, well, been shown to be sublethal and, and assumed to be safe levels, but we're finding actually that they do have uh, effects on uh, the morphology of tadpole brains. So we're exploring this finding a little bit more, uh, trying to figure out uh, these altered brain shapes. What does it mean in terms of the animal's function? Do they behave strangely? Is it just a random thing. It does it perhaps is it helpful? And so we're just uh, kind of in the early stages of this research, uh, but we're actually quite startled that these very low levels of trace pesticides are actually having an impact on something as important as brain shape. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also interesting that some of our studies are consistent with a few studies that have been done using mammals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a, a vertebrate-wide effect. It's not something unique to amphibians. Um, but our, our work with amphibians, it is a useful model for understanding vertebrate development in general. And, and these are uh, trace levels that even uh, we humans are exposed to, is that right? Right. So um, uh, the pesticides that we're, we're looking at is chlorpyrifos, and it is used on a whole bunch of different crops, including like apples. And so there are um, levels on it. Apples that are it's it's regulated how much can be on there, but there are a few trace levels, mm-hmm. and so I, I tell my students after doing this research, I'm a lot better about washing my veg <laughs> my fruits and vegetables before eating yeah. them, um, or if if um, you know buying organic more frequently. Although you know washing c- can also help, of course. Um, but now, now, does washing? I was thinking about that earlier today during the talk. Because you had also mentioned that some of these trace levels are found in the environment because of runoff and things like that. Does, does what, do they get processed out, say, in water treatment plants? Let's say you wash vegetables. Like, is, is it a concern that it ends up in a water supply somehow? Or, I mean, it's already being in the water supply. Right. So yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Um, our experiments, we always use well water. That's been... Um, filtered and UV radiated, mm-hmm. and so it should be really pretty clean. We aren't using water that has come from a wastewater treatment plant, but that's a really good question. I should look into that. But honestly, I know from my research that there are a lot of things that the a standard wastewater treatment plant cannot remove mm-hmm. from our drinking supply, so there is a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, one thing in particular are endocrine disruptors. Um, just... Uh, uh, like all the um, you know, the birth control pills that women mm-hmm. use, that stuff gets urinated out. It's ethanol estradiol, and um, some and, and trace levels of that do, does appear in drinking water, as well as a lot of the antibiotics yeah, that are used. Just flush them down, They're right? just right. Yeah. 
Uh, oh, so I'm it's, done with this prescription. Down yeah. the toilet it goes, which right. is what you should not be doing, people, right? Right. But, yeah. So it is something to think about, but I, I think that I, I do trust my government uh, for the most part that um, they're doing their best to clean the water. I know in Pittsburgh, I know some of the people who are involved in sort of my, managing the water supply, and I know it's a bunch of real smart people who are very concerned to make sure that the water is as safe as right. it, as it yep. can be. Right. But right. it's something just to always keep in the back of your mind. So, for example, I do... Um, I do filter my water, my drinking water at home. Yes. Oh, I definitely filter yeah, mine. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, you're more trusting of the government than I am. Uh, you know, I don't think they're conspiring against us. I just think that things fall through the system, right? Right. Uh, all you have to think about is Flint, Michigan. They're still without lead-free water to this right. day. Right. Uh, even though, you know, that was a national scandal, but we have short amnesia. Amnesia in this country. Just move on. I think on we're veering into right. your favorite podcast topic, the yeah. conspiracy uh, theory topic. <laughs> we, so uh, we, we could save that for a future I know. I, yeah, I try. I've always been a trusting person. My faith has been tried a bit the last few years. Um, I think All just, of our faith has been tried. But it's, it's the difference between hazards and risks. So true, we know there's true. hazards yes. everywhere. Yeah, you're right. Um, and you just have to manage the risk because you make decisions. Yes. So. It's also like that quote you had today uh, at the beginning of the lecture, everything is a poison. Mm -hmm. The dose is what matters. Right? Yes. Right. Too uh, much or too yeah, little of yeah, something. That's a great it's all about the standard range or the healthy Drinking, range. Drinking uh, an enormous amount of water can kill you. Yeah, right? exactly. Right? <laughs> no, I yeah. thought right? about so that too. Right, so people, marathon yeah. runners, yeah, sometimes absolutely. overdo it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can literally the overdose on water. Yes. One thing that kind of, and again, I'm a little bit subjective here and biased because I was lucky enough to teach with you back at Duquesne, but one thing that's uh, always struck me about your research and the research that you and I helped undergraduate students to do in the um, super lab at Duquesne was kind of the idea of inquiry-based, you know, learning and research. And that's actually kind of a push and an initiative that we've been, um, trying to implement into our labs here at Teal basically ever since I got here. Great. And, you know, it started at the foundations level. And one thing that we've had this idea on next time I teach my animal physiology class is to incorporate more of my research and my research aims and projects into, you know, a module or so of the um, animal physiology lab course. And again, that's something that I always thought was really interesting and striking that you were able to balance so effectively and engage students on was um, I think acid mine drainage mm -hmm, we did the one mm -hmm. semester at Duquesne. And again, mm -hmm. we're all, it's centered around this idea of what is coming from the environment and how is it affecting the different organisms. In that case, I think we studied crayfish, if I'm remembering correctly. Right, so, well, having you as a TA was wonderful. Thank you, you really uh, helped uh, with the application of some of these crazy ideas I had in Superlab. But I think the overall idea was trying to provide students an opportunity to do novel research. So trying to design labs where I didn't know what the answer was and no one did. And uh, that was hard and boy, yeah, Chris, you really rose to the occasion. I have to say some of the things I said, let's try this. And we're starting in two weeks. So Chris, go start that's why I'm so successful here, right? <laughs> Just these ideas come up, and within two weeks, they're in. Um, but thank you so much for that. I, but I remember just thinking to myself how... We like you here, too. Man. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. But I remember thinking, if I could have had that experience as an undergraduate, and thankfully, by kind of luck, I was able to get into the graduate program at Duquesne. But what was... Oh, that's fine. Okay. That's okay. We, I mean, we can shut up. Modern technology. Pause. Let me turn off my <laughs> cell phone. I never have it on or off at the right time. I just didn't know if you wanted to edit that piece. No, no, we won't edit it. We'll just keep going. Okay. It's, it's easier to just keep going than to do the editing. Yeah, I like the adaptability. And, and you know, this here. is an informal conversation anyway. Yeah, I'm not losing any points here. Okay. No one is losing points. <laughs> I, I don't keep scoring, but... <laughs> In your head, I knew you did. I didn't just get some participation points taken away for oh, having my cell phone on. Well, then let me just quickly them. send a text right now. Just kidding. <laughs> of course. Just kidding. But again, I think that's something that students... Yes, it's probably hard, and I know some students probably, maybe not frustrated, but they... It wasn't a caged lab. They didn't know what the exact answer was going to be. They're not following the recipe of the experiment. The students need that experience of 
the professors don't know right. where it's going next. Sometimes We're learning how science really is done. Exactly. Like I think part of the frustration from the student end or the student part comes from the fact that they are just so conditioned through middle school, high school, and early undergrad, depending mm -hmm. on you know what course they took or not. They're so conditioned to come into labs, get a protocol, everything is set up, they just follow the instructions, and at the end of it, they're guaranteed a result. They're right. so conditioned to yep. do science that way, right? And that is, in my opinion, the worst way to teach science because 99% of the time that never happens in science. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, and it, it is, it's challenging for the students. A lot of students don't like it. And I have to be continually telling them and focusing on the positives of the fact that we're doing this experiment. I'm not sure if it's going to work. And, oh, we got these results. And I have no idea what they mean. What are you, but that's for you guys to figure out yeah. when you're writing that lab report. No, no, and, pass it to them. And that can be hard for them. I think in, it comes back to that conditioning aspect. And nobody likes to, you know, even sometimes myself getting a result. And now I have to really think about, wow, I did not expect this. Uh, what do I do with this now? Um, it's not something that I think yeah. we're used to you know, considering like or dealing in, with. In control, as a, as right. a, as a no, species, you're right. right? We like to be in control. You're right about that. But I think as long as you tell them it's just a hypothesis, mm -hmm. and we don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's testable. That's what makes yes. it science. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do the experiment, and sometimes the students will say, oh, it didn't work. And, and actually, these experiments do work. I'm always shocked when they work. Mm -hmm. And by work, what I mean is that the, the, everything doesn't fail. The assays aren't a disaster. We actually get results. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they mean, and they maybe aren't don't support our hypothesis, mm -hmm. but they are results. And so in that sense, the experiment worked. And I have to constantly be correcting my students. Don't say the experiment didn't work. You say the experiment the results did not support our hypothesis, right. but the mm -hmm. experiment worked. And so now what are some what alternative hypotheses exactly. might these results support? Well, so, that just means if everything works like that, but it doesn't necessarily support your hypothesis, that's an even larger discussion section. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. you know, right. use your mind, go outside the box, do some where higher do order thinking. I mean, exactly. Every science paper you read, it's, well, where do we go next, right? And trust me, what some really good lab reports I've taken a look at, and I've said to myself, Here's a study I can do this coming summer with a, you know, really yeah, motivated. Right? Yeah, No, I'll put you in the acknowledgement <laughs> section. Well, this last year, um, so this is because we're doing novel research every year, I do something different, and it's kind of evolved most recently to looking at the effects of alcohol exposure oh, wow. on tadpole development. Um, looking at these same sorts of things, it's uh, so a model of fetal alcohol exposure, mm -hmm. and the students love that. Wow. Because I'm kind of putting in that biomedical angle, mm -hmm. and they really respond well to that. That's great. And this year, for the first time, I asked students in the class if anyone wanted to follow up in the summer with me. Mm -hmm. And two students raised their hands, and um, and they weren't necessarily the loudest, the most vocal, the most engaged students mm -hmm. in class. They um, one of them in particular was a little more kind of quiet. Both excellent students, um, and but not as demonstrative, mm -hmm. um, but. It turned out that they really thought that the experience was interesting. It's just and, a and hook, now, and if they have right. a question, and if they're intrigued, even at a base level, then after training, they can do their own project in the summer. That's fantastic. And we have results. Um, and uh, the one student is going to write them up for publication in the journal BIOS, oh, which is that journal great. for undergraduate research yes, that's so nice. sponsored by Triveda. Yes, and that's awesome. Isn't yeah. that nice? That's so great. there's kind of a goal. So she's very excited to be writing that up. Fantastic. So, um, one thing recently, uh, Duquesne and uh, through efforts uh, that you've been involved with, right, uh, got an REU grant. Is that correct? Right. So, so that's. You want to tell us a bit more about what REU is and about Duquesne's REU, and if there are students listening that are interested in the research program, uh, how to go about that. And I know the deadline is soon, right? Right. So this is a grant that Duquesne University received last year from the National Science Foundation, and it's called an REU grant that stands for Research Experiences for Undergraduates. And uh, Duquesne University has a summer undergraduate research program. It's a 10-week-long 10 10 immersive research program. And this grant, um, it allows us to fund eight students. Um, the students are, are, are mostly um, from places outside of Duquesne, because the point is to give students at smaller schools opportunities to research. Mm -hmm. 
And so it really is targeting non-Duquesne students for the most part. And um, so it, uh, I would encourage students to apply for it. Um, it's, the application is February 15th, that's the deadline. And this program that I'm involved in is called the Biology Circle Program. And what's, what I really like about it actually as well is so it's focusing on basic research. So if you're applying for it, people, I don't say that you want to go to me medical school and be a medical doctor, okay? Mm -hmm. Then you will be removed from the pool because it, NSF is, funds basic research. It doesn't fund biomedical applied research. That's a different branch of the government. Um, so it's basic biology research, but also it has um, some community engagement involved. Oh, that's great. So that was, CIRCLE actually stands for, um, the, it's an acronym, uh, Connecting Interdisciplinary Research with Community-Engaged Learning Experiences. Oh, wow. I nice. Think, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's that spells CIRCLE. <laughs> and um, a, a colleague in my, of mine uh, and I wrote it together, uh, but the community engagement is kind of a fun piece. Uh, basically, um, the students uh, will come up with science activities based on what they're doing in the research lab. And they're trans and um, these science activities that they're going to go to a, a middle school camp and share these activities with uh, middle school age kids at a summer camp. And oh, that's um, neat. it is really nice. Um, it's hard. It's um, some of the students, the college students, don't want to be dragged away from the lab and and go out into the community. But when they get there, they usually have fun. Um, and sometimes those kids are, they don't always like it or, you know, middle schoolers, they right. sometimes Short put on a show okay. of not being interested. Um, but then the feedback we get later is that they all loved it. Okay. So we've done a number of things. We've been doing this for the last five years or so. Sweet. Yeah. One, and, one of our groups did the, I think it was part of application based service learning right. in the one super lab. And that was, I mean, I agree with you. Some students were a little bit unsure of what exactly they had to do in terms of creating these science activities, but then other groups in that class were just, you know, completely, you know, putting together activities that I couldn't have dreamed of when I was their age. So um, and they and they enjoyed it. And doing the after school program right. was that uh, I think in Homestead. Or right. So in Hazelwood. Hazelwood. So that's in the right. Hazelwood area, um, they have a wonderful organization called the Center of Life. And its mission is to serve the residents of, mm -hmm. of Hazelwood. Um, and they provide um, academic enrichment. So they have after-school tutoring programs. They have wonderful sports programs. They have some dance programs. And so originally, and the, um, the personnel there, they're wonderful to work with. And um, so originally, I was sending students from my class to the after-school tutoring program really just a few times yeah. over the course of semester. That's now migrated into our summer undergraduate research program. That's great. Um, and so, again, we, are, we go, I think it's like Science Tuesday. So it's every Tuesday morning for about a month. Um, some of our college students who are undergraduate researchers take, come up with ideas and they share them with kids. And um, it's kind of a win-win situation. But the reason why I think it's so important is that we as scientists we are so focused on learning, learning, studying, studying, and we don't get mm -hmm. any experience in outreach, mm -hmm. no kind of background on why it's important to be civically engaged mm -hmm. as a scientist, and then no experience in doing it. Mm -hmm. right. And that's something I got none of that, and, sure. and it's not something that comes really naturally yeah. to me. And, um, and it's not something they train you for. Either. I, I did not get that in no. either my PhD or postdoc. Right? You're discouraged from doing it, in fact. That's and, true. and again, that's not the fault of any of my uh, PIs for both, right? It's just that that's not the current model we have. And I think as a society, and you know, here comes one of my, uh, <laughs> as a society, we're, we're bearing the effects of that right now. We're seeing it in a science disengaged or sometimes science ignorant public, not all of it, right? Portions of it that's leading to some of these false uh, comparatives of like, oh, oh, some scientists don't think climate change is real or, you know, these things like that out there where the P EPA is under attack and climate change, people don't mm -hmm. believe in it and a scientist is, is disregarded and, you know, things, things like that. I think well, it's growing from a core yeah. issue, right? And, like you know, that's, like you said, that's on us. That's on us scientists to go out there and do enough community engagement and explain why the science is important. 
and narrow it down. And sometimes I tell my students, prepare an elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. The project you do in my lab, if you can explain it to your 80-year-old grandmother mm -hmm. on Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. then, then you understand it and then, you know... You've succeeded you've in succeeded this project. And also yes. explaining it to the lay public out there, mm -hmm. right? If you can't explain it to your family on Thanksgiving, then you're not doing anybody any favors, right? Well, that's one of the big learning gains the students get. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they all say that their communication skills have yes. improved because they're talking with non-scientists. Yeah, they're children, but the children are quite smart. They, um, oh, yeah, they are. You know, the Pittsburgh Public Schools are, they, they do a good job, in my opinion. And uh, I can't, there's so many of the college students come back saying, well, I was teaching about acid mine drainage, but they already knew all about it. But nonetheless, the college students are getting experience communicating science to non-scientists. Non and I always stress, too, that we're not, we don't want to model where we're the brilliant scientists sharing our knowledge with the public, but it's collaborative. The mm -hmm. public as well yes. has, uh, has expertise, has knowledge, mm -hmm. and it's a discussion. It's a dialogue. Yep. And so that's one of the, the biggest gains, I think, that students realizing that we don't want to be talking down to the public, but that we can learn. It's, it should be a right. two-way street. Right. And at the end of the day, we actually work for the public. Mm -hmm. The money that we get from grants from the government mm -hmm. are taxpayer funded. Yeah. And, you know, one, one of the best things, you know, I've heard it on a different podcast. You know, one of the best things that uh, if you're ever on a public situation and let's say you get, you know, grants from the government, whatever, and someone says, oh, hey, what do you do for a living? Your answer should be, I work for you. And like then that. the conversation from there flows, oh, yeah. what do you mean you work for me? And then you explain the importance of, you know, science and funding, uh, publicly funding these things and yeah, these endeavors. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of us uh, get money from outside of private mm -hmm. sources, and that's taxpayer money. Well, and, and I think the attitude is changing because my work with you when I was a graduate student, helping out in that class with the um, ABSL and the after-school program, and then what I did during the summers at Duquesne with the uh, Sigma, the Sigma, mm -hmm. and high I've school taken, students who uh -huh. came for a week. I've taken those ideas, and we've done one summer camp here up at Teal for a select few students at local high schools. We're currently gearing up to have a second iteration of that program. It's going to be a Teal kind of science camp that will be jointly coordinated by. I'll be the main coordinator, but professors from biochemistry and neuroscience will be involved with teaching high school and very talented middle school children um, about, you know, science and fun science experiments. So kind of starting at almost the grassroots level like that, um, I think a lot of grad students at Duquesne get that experience, whether they or get that opportunity at least. Uh, whether they take advantage of it or not is their choice, but I was always usually involved pretty heavily during the summertime and then that one semester or two with you. And that really informed something that I feel that's one of my duties as an assistant professor. I do, I love doing outreach here. And that's something I continue and will continue to do, you know, forever for as long as I can. Well, I find actually the students are hungry for mm -hmm. outreach opportunities or community-engaged learning opportunities. So at the undergraduate level, I was actually really surprised when I started seeing students talking about these experiences. It was on their CVs, their mm -hmm. resumes because they saw those as valuable opportunities mm -hmm. that they wanted to advertise on their resumes. And I think communicating with the non-science public is particularly important for so many of our biology students who want to go into the health professions. Yes. Okay? No, it's key. And then also our graduate students, they are also hungry mm -hmm. for opportunities to do outreach or to engage with the, the public because I think it's changing. Yes. And we had a really great student of ours, Amy Ritchie. She helped out with the last science camp almost two years ago now. And she just really wanted to do it. She had a passion for it. And I think she approached myself and talked with Delbert. And she got her clearances and helped out the entire week. And even with things that were outside of her field and, you know, maybe classes that she hadn't necessarily taken before, she participated and helped the, kid, the kids there. She took one day where she said, okay, I, I can handle this. You can go away now. And she did the presentation on gram staining, on microbiological identification. I mean, I could take right. a few hours off, but <laughs> she wanted that experience. She said, I know it's going to be tough. It's outside of my comfort zone, but I want to do this. And so, again, an example of how you really learn something when you have to teach it. Yep. yep. So that's wonderful how you kind of modeled it, and then your students 
took over. That's that great. That's exactly the goal, isn't it? And I already have two students who have approached me from the past few months and said, hey, if the science camp is running again this summer, I'd like to be, you know, a peer undergraduate nice. mentor. Nice. And the more the merrier because I'll go to lunch and say, okay, take it from here. I'll, I'll observe <laughs> silently. Nice. nice. Well, we are approaching an hour here, and that's usually when we kind of um, – and things. Any uh, advice you have for final words, advice for anybody wanting to get into science or? Just go for words? it. Just go, go for, for it. it. And then um, take advantage of opportunities as they arise. I try to be kind of a yes person. Um, sometimes there are opportunities and I think, oh, that'll be too much work. I shouldn't do it or I'm a little nervous. Um, but I usually force myself to say yes. And boy, it always turns out for the best. So take advantage of these opportunities. So as one example, Duquesne University has our very large undergraduate research program. Throw your hat in the in the ring, put in an application, um, and uh, I'll, I'll, go for it. If you give me a link, I'll put it in the show notes when we post the episode. Okay, yeah. we'll do. Sure. Okay. Okay. Any, any final words on your end? Um, if you're interested in research, please. The link will be on the podcast and, you know, just the hardest part is actually putting forth the effort to apply and then just, you know, let it go from there. But just go for it, I guess. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and thank you, uh, Sarah and Dr. Woodley for thank being you. here. Thank you. It was a, a treat. No, this was great. Uh, all right. That's our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. That's thebiobusters at gmail.com. Dot com. You can find us on iTunes. Just search for the BioBusters. You can also use any podcast catcher to download our episodes. You can listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com or on iTunes when, or any other podcaster. I'm Delbert Evie Abdallah, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert, and you can find Chris Fawner at Fawner916. Inactive Twitter account. Inactive Twitter should account. should be active. Still has not... TBA. Tweeted anything. We'll oh, say he, TBA. He promised what for my Christmas gift was going to be you tweeting the links to the episodes. I don't remember that. I'm oh, it's, oh, it's in the episode. I, 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 I think people can see that. No, I don't remember that at all. You dubbed my voice. Are in. you on uh, Twitter? So about five years ago, five years ago, I got an account because I okay. thought it would be very useful and a good teaching sure. tool. Sure. Uh, but then there was nobody I was interested in following. Mm. But I think in the last, but now there are tons of people. So mm. I'm going to get back on it actually. Okay. Well, so do find us when I will you do, absolutely. do it, yeah. Absolutely. That's a New Year's resolution is to get active with Twitter. I'm realizing what a valuable tool it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, I follow so many scientists on there, and I increase the number I follow every mm-hmm. every day. And there's so much info out there that I would not read or find otherwise. Right, exactly. All right. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to Ba Namani for the music. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.